0: On The Job, with
1: Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach.
0: My name is Sally Rugg, and maybe some of the things I say don't represent the views of my employer. Maybe. How are you? We often talk about how I am at the beginning of the podcast, and I want to focus on you. How are you going?
1: I'm okay. I I still haven't got out of lockdown mentality. I reckon, and we're thinking and feeling for everybody currently in lockdown all around Australia. It's a really perverse situation we find ourselves in because, at least for you and I, we lived through an extended lockdown in Victoria. We don't need to sort of roll across the history of that again, but suddenly we are living relatively free lives whilst other parts of Australia are experiencing frustrating lockdowns and and disruption. And um, just thinking of everyone in New South Wales, Queensland and elsewhere who are having that disruption at the moment, knowing that it's school holidays as well. So it, there's all sorts of complications and disappointments and just the weariness that people must be feeling about having plans change radically at very short notice, holiday plans, mm. flights.
0: Especially school holidays, yeah. It,
1: it's a really frustrating time, no doubt about it. And also for all the, all the people in this sort of down the supply chain of the economy and workers again on the end of this, working across holiday periods, students and others who uh, were maybe working in those sectors which would have uh, been very busy because of uh, incoming tourists and people visiting, suddenly that's not there, that income disappears and once again we have the casual work economy exposed for what it is and leaving people with with no money in their pockets. So thinking of all of that, but just from a personal point of view, I'm still working a lot from home. And so it's just a different mentality, isn't it, about like I'm quite comfortable. I live in a lovely place. I I enjoy working at home, but I can find myself for days on end, not really venturing beyond my house other than for necessity. So to go get uh, things at the shop or to take the dog for a walk or all of those things, which is fine, but it's it's when you step back a little bit from it's a little bit odd and it's not a sort of, it's not the way I've always lived my life, but I've suddenly found myself, you know, sort of in that kind of habit and I don't necessarily like it. So I've got to find a way to be more consciously engaging in the outside world whilst I have the opportunity, whilst the pandemic isn't impinging more directly on me. I don't know if that's your experience of this, but it's something I became conscious of this week.
0: Yeah, totally. I think last year, Certainly in Melbourne, and that's, you know, and the only real experience I can speak to, obviously. But I think lockdown 101 and then like 102 through four, here in Melbourne, once we were allowed to have an hour and then two hours of, of exercise a day, and then we were allowed to go with a walking buddy, like all these little extra freedoms that we were given. I remember just making the most of it. My partner and I and sort of neighbours who live nearby were like, great, let's go down to the creek. Like, let's, okay, let's like do a walk up that hill we've never, you know, really sort of trying to make the most of these little bits of freedoms. But now it's like I completely feel what you're saying. Like we're not in lockdown right now, but the two weeks we were in lockdown, we still had an hour of exercise a day, but I was just like, I just was so weary. I think that's a good way of describing it. I just was like couldn't find joy in the hour of exercise anymore. <laughs> I just didn't want to do it.
1: No, I think that's a really widely felt thing across the entire community and and I'm sure that's exactly what people in areas in Australia that are locked down and with as I said we our thoughts are with you at the moment because we know what you're going through. A feeling because it it feels like we're in the second year of this now and uh, because we don't have a horizon where so-called normal life returns because the vaccine rollout has been such a clusterfuck, and that's the only way to describe it, people can't they can't fix on the horizon and go. That's our goal. That's the place we need to, that we're going to. It seems endless, and therefore the sacrifices mm. and the interruptions are just a little more bruising because of that. And I think you know, speaking to people I work with, I'm sure it's probably the same with you and others in your working environment. It just means that motivation is just a little harder to find, and morale is 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 sagging a little, and just that energy that requires for creativity is is really being challenged. And it's hard. It's a real really hard time to be working and balancing family life and then sort of missing out on the things, that, the simple little joys that we used to take for granted, like, you know, bumping into someone mm. in the street and having a coffee or, you know, nicking off to the pub or whatever. Those things aren't happening at the moment. So, you know, I'm more conscious of that at the moment than I have been. So uh, I guess the, the, the takeout lesson is that we just need to be conscious of that and look after each other and just ask the question. A couple of people I've spoken to in the last a couple of weeks have openly admitted, and this is an important step for the same middle aged men because we never do this. Yeah, I'm really f- struggling it's really hitting me and actually articulating that they're finding it really difficult rather than just sort of bottling it up. So I think that's important at the moment. If you are feeling that way, uh, if you've got a support network that you know you can rely on, and trust, then you need to reach out to them. If you don't have that support network, then I am you know, really hope that uh, you can find a way to some services that will actually assist you. And we we'll, might we'll put some links in our show notes about that, that will assist you in just dealing with getting through this period of real challenge because um, it feels like we're still in this, Sally, for the Long haul, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, and particularly with the complete cluster fudge of the vaccine rollout. Like, I'm not going to get deep in the weeds around vaccines right now, but I, I something that did give me hope was that um, last night I went with my same-sex romantic life partner, Kate McCartney, to get her second Pfizer jab and we went to a vaccination hub that has been propped up or, you know, stood up in the last, I don't know, a couple of months it must have been. But it was just extraordinary. Like, I'm not eligible yet. I wish I was. But as soon as we walked in, I started tearing up. And I spoke a couple of weeks ago or months ago on the pod about how like to me the fact that these vaccines have even been invented in a, such a short amount of time I find it very overwhelming in terms of the like majesty of human science and capacity and collaboration. And just walking into this vaccine center all these like staff walking around um in these little booths where people were getting vaccinated and just the feeling was so joyful and I start sort of like tearing up and this uh, health worker behind the counter was like are you okay are you scared of needles or are you feeling nervous I was like oh I'm not <laughs> I'm not even here to get vaccinated <laughs> like I'm just very moved by this you know the way so many scientists and workers and industry and policy. De- like I'm just very moved by this fast response, which was obviously easy to feel right in the centre of a vaccine hub. Um, but we know the reality is is that these hubs should be everywhere. They should be in workplaces. It's not enough to have sort of a handful of places here and there where people like me are uneligible for a few more months. Anyway, it was beautiful. If anybody listening is waiting for a sign to book in your jab, this is it. This is your sign. We got a lollipop. Well, Kate got a lollipop. They tried to give it to me and I was just I was saying, nope, I don't deserve it. Not yet. I don't deserve it yet. I'm not eligible. I'll wait.
1: And you wait till I get here because I'll be a flood of tears from start to end. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right, Sally. It, it, it is that uh, I think as, as unionists and people who believe in the power of the collective effort um, the way that uh, the scientific and medical community and civil society have gathered around and harnessed their forces, ingenuity and genius to create a vaccine that can deal with this this uh, pandemic has been awe-inspiring. Um, the other side of it, of course, is the mistrust and mismanagement of the vaccine by uh, governments and, and authorities, which have made it much, difficult, much more difficult for people to trust in vaccines. But there's a deeper question about that, which is about the general so- social contract around the trust in government, the trust in our institutions, which at one time was probably uh, unbreakable at certain periods in our history, but right now is being really tested and we need to find a way to get that back because... In moments like this, the only way we get through this is by having that belief in the power of our collective effort, a trust in our institutions, and a belief that the science will not let us down. So we've got to try to join those things up again. You know what? We also need to join up people who do not speak the language that we do. We were talking about this, and this is why we're doing this week's podcast, is imagine how difficult it is right now. Just to follow the news and the different announcements that are going on, and you know, the change in policy, and you know, direction, and lockdown, out of lockdown, stage three, stage four. It's hard enough when you speak the language English is a first language in which most of this information is being delivered. How more difficult would it be if English wasn't your first language, or if you didn't have English at all, to try to keep up with the avalanche of difficult, sometimes confusing and conflicting information to make valid and informed choices about what is the right thing to do. It must be just, you know, near on impossible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was so excited this week to talk to our next guest Giuseppina and talk about what it's been like for people working as translators during the pandemic a job that is already quite often on the front lines of crisis whether it's in hospitals in police stations in courts and now faced with a pandemic and yeah what that experience has been like and the burgeoning campaign of translators around the country who are organizing for their rights yeah really really loved talking to Giuseppina this week.
1: Here she is, Giuseppina Pagdatorre. She's a translator. She's also a union organiser for an industry that is vital for people who don't speak English, but also one that is highly casualised, underpaid and undervalued. Not by us though. Let's go and meet Giuseppina here on the job. On the job with Frances Leach and Sally Rung. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis and Sally with you now, Sally. Today we are very privileged because we've headed out to Pascoe Vale South in Melbourne's glorious northern suburbs on a brilliant winter's day and we're sitting in the kitchen of Jessupina Pignatore, who's an interpreter, whose job it is to try and help those who have English as a second language or no English at all, navigate what has been a crazy, crazy time, particularly during the COVID period where news and information are absolutely vital. And Jessupina, we welcome you to On The Job. How are you?
2: I'm good, and thank you for having me.
1: We start by asking you about Your journey to doing the work you do as an interpreter.
2: Right. I came back from a 13-year stint living overseas. And I had, when I came back to Melbourne, I had two very young girls to look after. And one of my brothers was teaching at RMIT in the language department. And he noticed that, you know, clearly my Italian skills had improved. And he knew that I loved studying, anything to do with languages and spoken word and what have you. So he suggested that I perhaps, first of all, try out to see whether I could do the course. It was an advanced diploma that RMIT, I think RMIT still run that, did it and fell in love with it, quite frankly.
0: So incredible. You know, I've been really excited to come and talk to you today. And I just right. have to note that for everyone listening, the moment I walked through the door, Giuseppina offered me, it was like, oh, I've got something in the oven and the coffee's <sighs> boiling. Um, and I've never had that experience before recording a podcast. It's lovely. <laughs> um.
2: Well, we can thank Emily for what's in the oven. Um, <laughs> but yes, there's there's usually, it's school holidays. So it's it's a nice thing to do. Baking is definitely something that we
0: enjoy. Don't quite do enough of it these days, but yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the type of person who relies on an interpreter, right? Like, because in Australia, lots of people come from, you know, backgrounds where they speak another language or they have English as a second language. But in order to use an interpreter, it must mean that their English is limited. And so, are you working predominantly with elderly people or newly arrived migrants? Mm. Sort of what's the. That's
2: uh, actually a really good question and I'm going to answer only in so far as my language is concerned because you can you can appreciate the fact that I interpret for Italian speaking people that is my other language I do English and Italian clearly it's not going to be the same demographics perhaps for someone who interprets for Somali speaking people for example With Italians, it is predominantly an aged population. That has to be said. However, I was noticing how there are a lot of young people who are coming out from Italy as well, people who perhaps want to study and improve on their language skills or people who have family over here. It really takes in quite a large age group. Mm. Predominantly still, though, the Italian who has been here since 1961, <laughs> um, who's unfortunately going through the whole aged care system. But not only. It's, it's very interesting in, in that because uh, I have a lot of people from different age groups, which mm. I find really interesting.
1: At this particular time, as I mentioned at the start, being able to understand what's happening in the news and the way the news changes and the public health announcements that can shift overnight. And we've seen a lot of that. Even in the while we're recording this podcast, three days ago, AstraZeneca was only going to be available to people over 60. That was a change. Within 72 hours, it's now going to be available to everybody. So it's hard enough for people who speak the language to follow what the health guidelines are or what the changes are. How stressful has it been for people who don't speak the language, and how much of a, a burden of responsibility has it been for people like you, whose job it is to try and explain what's going on?
2: As an interpreter, it's not really my position to you know to try and get out to the community. I would like to see more people you know, take on that responsibility. I would like for people who are, I guess, in media, for example, to really take on board the fact that we do have a really large multicultural community. That would be great because then they could hire a translator, you know, an interpreter to speak at events, to perhaps write things. For example, the Italian community have an Italian radio station that they can listen to. But I'm not sure that they're actually getting that really vital information, as you said, that, that happens on a moment-to-moment basis. That would be great. That would be the responsibility of media people out there and unfortunately that's that's not happening during the lockdown when we had that really stressful period where the towers were in lockdown mm-hmm. you know we had a lot of interpreters on the ground with those languages to go alongside the emergency workers that's the kind of thing that you need we just need People in in the Australian community in general to be aware that we are there, we are a resource, they can you know hire us, they can uh, have us you know alongside them and and really deal with this sort of situation. Yeah.
0: And that was a criticism of the government's federal and state last year, right? Yeah. That the fact that there are so many people living across this continent who don't have English as a first language, Or might not speak English at all. And, you know, it really seems like an afterthought. Mm. Particularly here in Melbourne, where COVID got into aged care homes, the largest one was St Basil's, which was like a big Greek care home. So shouldn't have been an afterthought.
2: That's exactly right. Quite often, in my experience, interpreters are an afterthought. Mm. It's almost as though we're a necessary evil, whereas we should be considered as just necessary full stop
0: yeah
2: that that would be a really good step forward and that's what we're trying to do with this year's campaign With, is get it out to the community.
1: Well, let's talk about the sort of work you do because I imagine you come into play for people when they're in moments of crisis. They could be at a hospital, they Absolutely. could be at a court or a ministry of tribunal. So it's at that particular point that communication needs to be clear and they've got to be confident exactly. and they can trust what they're being told. Is that is that how it is? That's how it should be. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's exactly how it should be, Francis. A good interpreter will always be able to interpret what the other professional is trying to say, whether that's an oncologist or a high court judge or a member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, whatever, but at the same time also be able to interpret what the non-English speaker is trying to say. So we are taught, you know, how to really keep the tone to the work that we do and also how to have that bit of empathy and to be able to say the things that the non-English speaker is saying with that same emotion that they're, you know, trying to get their information across as well. So it's a very fine balance between the two.
0: That must be hard sometimes. I mean it doesn't sound like you're necessarily a completely neutral third party but you kind of are sort of like a channel through which communication is happening between two parties but I can I can imagine there being situations you know in in a health setting in particular or even like down at a police station or these moments of crisis that we were referring to before where you being someone who is speaking Italian and so obviously has a shared cultural history Mm -hmm. I can imagine the person needing the translation could really look to you as sort of like someone to lean on or like an advocate in the room or... Yeah, and sometimes
2: it's very hard for us to maintain that, I guess, that barrier. You don't Mm -hmm. want to... We're really not there to advocate on their behalf. We're just there to say exactly what they want to say. So in a way, we have to... Blend into nothing in the background. We have to make them feel as though they have the capacity to speak to this other person in front of them, as exactly as they normally would. Mm-hmm. It's difficult almost all the time. Um, sure, there are some jobs that may seem a little bit easier, but it's difficult all the time because you're always dealing with someone in a you know in a situation where they need to be understood. Whether they're having physiotherapy to regain the movement in their knee or hips after an operation, or whether they've been subjected to family violence and they're in front of the courts trying to get an order against someone. The unfortunate thing for interpreters is that because we do then tend to blend back into the background, nobody really has much thought about, oh, hang on, how's she doing or how's he doing? Because sometimes we deal with, perhaps not so much with Italians, I've had very limited experience with really severe abuse cases, but I do know of interpreters that have gone, for example, to Manus Island or who deal with Foundation House you know, where you're dealing with people who have been victims of really serious trauma and abuse. You know, there has to be something in place also to protect the well-being of these language experts that are doing their job and then they walk away and they feel, oh, you know, that was hard.
1: You mentioned when we were corresponding earlier that there's some concerns around in these high pressure environments at the moment with doctors and with police and whatever else, that they're now in a rush to get things sorted. So they're bypassing interpreters or you're finding it more and more difficult to actually be present in a conversation because some professionals are just going, well, I'm just going to go with my gut on this, I'm going to make a a, a random call and I think I understand what this person's saying so we're going to do A, B and C. That's a real worry, isn't it?
2: Um, I can think of one particular. One member of TIA came to us and uh, said, So this particular interpreter is actually working in a hospital because you also have interpreters who who do have um, full-time positions in hospitals, very, very few, but nonetheless – and this is, of course, no, you know, no judgment on the doctors or the medical staff because I completely understand that they're also under a lot of pressure to try and see as many patients as they can. However, they do try and cut corners. A family member is not an interpreter, should never be used as an interpreter. In a lot of cases, that's what they resort to. This particular interpreter was um, sitting with the doctor but the patient was on the phone with her nephew, of all people. So the doctor just carried on this conversation. It was just a follow-up from a procedure. And the nephew thought, no, no, she, you know, she's doing quite well. She's good. She looks great. And the um, nephew's
0: not in the room. The right? nephew
2: is not in the room. The nephew is in the room with the patient, with the Italian-speaking patient. So they're conversing over the telephone. The doctor and the nephew are on the telephone. I can hear what's going on because it's on loudspeaker. And the doctor is just asking questions to this family member, not directly to the patient. At one point, he turns around and says to the interpreter, well, seeing as we have the interpreter here, perhaps, you know, Mrs. So-and-so would like to have a chat with, with our interpreter. Of course, the interpreter says, I'm not here on a social visit. I'm I'm here to, if you'd like to speak with the patient directly, I can help you do that. I'm here for that. So um, the doctor then proceeds to ask the patient directly a few questions. It turns out that she is actually having symptoms that are like noteworthy symptoms, symptoms that her nephew knew nothing about because she was simply embarrassed to tell him. Now, if you're talking about a, you know, perhaps a 75-year-old woman who's just had, uh, I don't know, some sort of a, a, a bladder procedure, she's not going to be that open talking about what, you know, what she's experiencing after that to her nephew. When the doctor asked by the interpreter, it turns out that some of those symptoms sent off a few alarm bells. And he sent out an ambulance to get her and bring her into emergency. Wow. So
1: that's an example of how things can go wrong if it's not done properly. I want to talk to Gisipina about the vital work that you do. You've explained a little bit just how important it is and how vital it is to people to have a voice in the room they understand Mm -hmm. and can express themselves on your behalf the industry itself is set up to treat you like a casual worker like a gig worker can you explain how it works because i was shocked when you explained to me <laughs> how you go about securing work how you're paid um, and how workers are almost set one against the other to try to get work yeah. but it's like a, a casualization of a vital workforce that um, i find quite shocking can you give us a bit of a sense of so how do you get a job
2: personally I only work with one agency. That's just been an organic sort of thing that's happened over the years. A language
1: service provider. A
2: language service an provider. LSP. Absolutely. You've done your homework. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> so we have various language service providers. I believe that back in the 90s, these were all privatised. Prior to that, you could actually work directly for the government, which was – Basically, the same wage we're getting now. Have a think about that. That's thirty years, wow. and our wages have not gone up.
1: Thirty years.
2: Yeah, even though we've we've really, um, you know, this is this is all this comes down to privatization. It's been handed out to these private agencies. There is no EBA as far as interpreters go. We work under the health award system, which is not really catered to interpreters as such. Quite often, our contracts are casual contracts which is absolutely crazy. So the uh, agency, the LSP, sends out an email saying, okay, we require an Italian interpreter on such and such a day at such and such a time. It doesn't get sent just to me. It gets sent to 10, 15 interpreters. So
0: first one in,
1: bang. Like a taxi driver.
0: Right, right. It's absolutely crazy. But even, sorry, even taxi drivers, like they have the first cab off the rank. Rule. I mean, that's literally named after taxi drivers, right. you know, like right. okay. oftentimes they're in a line.
2: Okay, whereas we're pretty much, so if I'm working, if I'm doing a job, if I'm in a tribunal, of course I'm not going to have my phone in front of me to, mm. you know, these jobs come in randomly. They don't say we're going to send out jobs between three and four in the afternoon. No, you know, this is something that we really need to look at, the whole procurement process and also which agencies do work for which organisations, like who's going to be given police work and federal work. And at the end of the day, when it trickles down to the interpreter, I don't really want to speak too much about the agencies as such because they have their way of getting their jobs and uh, yeah, I'm not really sure how that works. The way we get ours is just via the notification. You press on accept and you take the job. Like we're supposed to be engaged for a minimum of 90 minutes. That's not always the case. We don't have just one standard 90-minute rate. So you
0: wouldn't get paid for that full 90 minutes if it finishes after 30 minutes?
2: Oh, we do. Thankfully we do. Thankfully we do. We get paid no travel time to get there. So if you have to travel travel from a home
1: in Pasco Vale to somewhere, you've taken a job and it's maybe – in uh, Caulfield, you Mm. don't get paid for the 45 minutes each way that you you have to travel.
2: You do not get paid. You only get paid travel time. If I was going, for example, to Wangaratta, if I go out to the country and it's over a certain number of kilometres, then you get charged.
0: For people listening who aren't from Victoria and also for me who (laughs) is not – like historically from Victoria. How far is Mangarada? Uh, more than an hour away. Right, okay. like, yeah, it's about 200
1: k's at yeah, least.
2: Yeah, exactly. So only if you're going out into country areas.
1: So the, the disincentives to continue to do this work are enormous because the amount of sacrifice you have to make, the I guess the compounding stress, working with people in difficult situations, the low pay, the insecurity around <laughs> it. Um,
2: the insecurity is, I think... Is what's really come to the fore, and I and I do apologise for interrupting you, Francis. Um, the insecurity is something that's really come out, especially since COVID. Because, just to give you an idea, before you would get a certain amount for doing a face to face job, all of a sudden that job has turned into perhaps a telephone assignment because you can't mm-hmm. either go to the place or anyway. Because of COVID. That is a reduction of, I was just doing the sums before, of at least 35%. 35%.
0: And on what grounds? Because you're still doing the work on the and ground, if anything, surely it's more right? difficult because you're, you you're not in the Thank room you. to pick up those nonverbal cues and, and tone. And Thank you. On the grounds that I don't know. <laughs> I don't know on what grounds.
2: I know that if I'm on the telephone doing, let's just say, a guardianship list application. We're all in VCAT. I know the VCAT members getting exactly the same. Everyone else in that, you know, environment is being paid exactly what they were being paid pre COVID. The interpreter has gone down by 35%. We're actually doing exactly the same work. Mm. In fact, you're right. We rely very much on the non-verbal cues and we don't have those. So a lot of the times it's really difficult. It's also difficult for the non-English speaker to communicate in that so in that setup. So sometimes we have to modify the language just Ever so slightly so that it, you know, makes them feel comfortable and it helps them to open up. And yet thirty five percent
1: less. So is it the language service provider that provides the fee? And is that who you if you're an individual interpreter and you're not a member of a union, but I know that you are the member of the union. I am. If you're an individual interpreter who's not a member of the union, doesn't have any advocacy or representation, you have to negotiate with your LSP for the cost of your service?
2: The way I understand it, each LSP has a set rate. Like they have, and you know, I've got mine right here, they're um, interpreting rates of pay for yeah. Victoria. That's another thing, they change from one state to another. So if I'm interpreting for VCAT, or well, clearly it's not called VCAT, but if it's in um, New South Wales, I get paid according to the New South Wales rates. Even though I'm here in Victoria, there's a lot of things that need to change. And no, you don't actually negotiate with the agency. The agencies have a set rate. It should also be noted that there are different levels of interpreters. I'm classified as a certified interpreter. For which, I might add, I have to recertify every three years. There's a national authority and every three years I have to prove that I have enough points to be able to recertify, which means I retain my certification as the highest level of interpreter.
1: At your own cost and expense?
2: Of course. At my own cost and expense. So professional development events I pay for. Having said that, just, uh, well, our union, bless them. Tell um, us, what union you're in? We're part of Professionals Australia, but our particular union is Translators Interpreters Australia and uh, they provide us with PD events. Yay! <laughs> it's it's fantastic, especially in the last 12 months, I'd say. They have been churning out, you know, PD events that we can, like webinars and um, things that we can attend and therefore build up our points so that we can recertify. Um, A number of agencies are also doing this for their employees. Mm. It's, It's no cost to them. Some are charging. Some that you have, for example, Monash runs some
0: really good
2: professional development events, but you have to pay for those and that comes out of our pockets.
0: At the top, you mentioned something about the campaign you are running this year. Can you tell us about that? What's this campaign? And how can we get behind it?
2: <laughs> Just simply by contacting Professionals Australia. It has been very, very hard to try and get people involved especially 2020 we were we were getting to the point where we were having regional meetings so i would have a meeting for all the interpreters and translators in this you know the brunswick area it was wonderful it was a chance for us to meet with them find out what were their issues what were the things that we could help out with Of course, with COVID, that sort of went by the by. What we're trying very much to do now is to just let the community at large know what we do and the importance because no one else is doing it, so we have to do it ourselves. So we're going to try and reach out to the different ethnic groups and say, you know, this is what an interpreter does, this is what we're here for. Um, yeah, and and sort of develop on that. Mm -hmm. Does the campaign have a name? Um, I think we went with One Language, One Voice, but I don't think that's been set.
0: Uh, So it's still TBC.
1: Need to talk to Sally. She's kind of good on campaigns. (laughs) Definitely. It sounds fantastic. Love
2: love it. I think the the work that they do is, um, is brilliant. Through the union, I actually have something that is you know apart from the pd events the points the you know the only organisation that actually looks after my interests because we managed to get a bit of funding in 2018 through the Victorian government specifically for language services so we actually managed to get a wage increase that was that was great now we just have to spread the word about who we are what we do we're here if you need us Hire us.
1: And pay us (laughs) properly. pay
2: us properly, exactly. (laughs) But getting involved is is really, really easy just through Professionals Australia, TIA. There's a lot of issues that we need to sort through. So we have our hands quite full.
1: (laughs) Jessupina, thank you so much for having us in your beautiful home. I think we're ready for coffee and cake now. I think so.
2: (laughs) Thank (laughs) you (laughs) so much. It's been so lovely to talk. Thank you very much.
1: Translator Jessupina Pagdatore, there, talking to us about the work that she does with migrant Italian families and Italian people who are here in Australia who need the translator services. And her experience, Sally, is uh, replicated across so many different cultural groups. These people do absolutely vital work, particularly in these difficult times. And uh, as we heard from Jessupina, often they're underpaid, they're they're treated very poorly by their language service providers and um, they need some help and they need a bit of recognition for the work that they do. And that's what we've been trying to do here today on the job.
0: And just as a side note, I mean, maybe this came through over audio and people listening will be like nodding and being like, yes, Sally, we got it. Maybe you got this, but we were sitting in a room with Giuseppina. I was sitting next to her and she just emanates such warmth and kindness. And as soon as I walked into her house, I just felt like I wanted to hug her, even though (laughs) we've never met. You know, the reason why I wanted to ask her about whether it's difficult when those lines get blurred between being a neutral third party translator, but perhaps wanting to comfort someone or be an advocate or you know I can just imagine that being difficult for her more than she perhaps let on because she seems to me to be such a caring person um but I I also think that people just from you know that time we spent with her then I feel like people who are relying on a translator in their moment of need or you know week of need or whatever to have someone like her in the room as that warm presence would be such a comfort.
1: And we'll go back there again soon because the cake was A1, superb. Straight out of the oven, straight on the plate. <laughs> <laughs> Good to see you, Sally. Have a great week, and uh, we'll catch you again next week on the job. We can follow you on the socials at Sally Rugg.
0: You can follow Francis at Saint Frankly on Twitter. Don't forget um, to give us a rating.
1: Don't forget to give us a rating. Give us your five stars. Tell people about the pod. Share the information and the inspiration. So whatever platform you're on, write us a rating and a review. Um, it really helps other people find the pod, selling.
0: Thanks so much, everybody. Chat next week. Bye-bye.